the Gang of Four plotting against your freedom. Plus, was the attack on the Kremlin that could start World War Three a jolly good show? And on World Press Freedom Day, don't mention Assange. Coming up on this week's episode of the Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 5th of May, 2023. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader, Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's show, we're going to talk about the meeting that four big bankers had in Australia, where they rubbed their hands together with glee and said, yeah, man, you can all go cashless. We're working at it. We're working it out for you. Um, so that's part of the the, you know, the, the sort of arrogance that we're fighting against here. Um, plus, uh, time permitting, Craig, we're going to actually give you some interesting insight into the attack on the Kremlin, which is very, very serious uh, because of its implications as an escalation of this conflict. And the danger is always the, you know, getting into um, World War III. Um, and I'm wearing my Assange t-shirt, don't shoot the messenger. This week was World Press Freedom Day. And some of the hypocrisy that's been on display on World Press Freedom Day has to be seen to be believed. So we're going to show you on video. Um, before we begin, remember, you know, we put out a lot of good stuff on the show, but the way we get it out widely is with your help. So like the show, share it through all your social media and email and everything else you do. Um, if you're not a subscriber, subscribe and remember to, to to um, hit the bell icon, um, go through that procedure. Please comment. As much comment as possible um, drives the algorithm, uh, but it gives us feedback, which is very, very useful. So please do that. And also please donate. There's a donate button down below um, because this isn't just information. This is activation. We are. We talk about things that we're fighting, right? And, and our party is very unique in the things that we fight um, against. And our campaigns get quite... Um, can be quite successful, right? So yeah. get, please get behind that. And thanks for those who do donate. It's, it's a big uh, weight off my shoulder. I'm the treasurer, so I get to pay Robbie's bills, as we have, always have a joke. Yep. And Robbie's about to head off to the next bank, uh, re, uh, the next hearings on the Regional Banking Task Force. Yeah, way out west. Way out west. Cloncurry. So, yeah. yeah, in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be going up for that, um, which was flight, flight from here to Brisbane. Brisbane, here is Melbourne, in case you don't know. Melbourne to Brisbane, Brisbane to Mount Isa, Mount Isa to Townsville. Townsville to Ingham, but that's not a, that'll be a drive, and then back to Brisbane, maybe Sydney, and come back home. Yeah, so that is not a cheap. When you start talking about regional areas, unfortunately, it's not a cheap proposition. So you can throw a few dollars in by donating; it'd be a great help. Yeah, so I don't have to take a kite or something. Yeah, or you know, camel. Camel. <laughs> all right, um, all right. Now, also before we begin, just quickly, last week we broke a very big story here, and I say we broke it because we provide the historical relevance to this. Um, we talked about the commitment by the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, to implement the first of the, all the recommendations of the Reserve Bank Review, the first of which being um, ending the power of the Treasurer to overrule the Reserve Bank on monetary policy. Now, um, if you're groaning under the strain of interest rate rises, and we've got another one this week, you, know, you might think one day, why are they keep loading this pressure on me? Well, the Reserve Bank Governor's not going to listen to you, but the Treasurer might because he might want to get re-elected one day, right? And they're, take, they're giving up that power. So we are actually gearing up for a big mobilisation on this because um, even Paul Keating, now this is the last time you and I were together, mm. Craig, I think we talked about what we agreed with Paul Keating on when he yeah. came to his intervention on China. We, we, and we, we did a carve-out saying we don't agree with Paul Keating on economics, but we did it on foreign policy. Yeah. He has weighed into this. The guy who privatised the Commonwealth Bank has weighed into this and said, this is wrong. You must keep the power of the elected officials greater than the bureaucrats. That's the principle of democracy. It was his version of, of John Curtin saying the same thing. So that is just shows you that, you know, he's talking as an older generation person, that the contrast with this modern generation and their, their total embrace of a... Not democracy, it's technocracy, mm. right? Mm. They, they, it's a technocratic banker's dictatorship that they're setting up. 
we can't tolerate this. So this is Friday morning. We're recording this on Tuesday. The parliament resumes for the for the budget sitting. We have prepared a video, which will um, you'll see it on our YouTube page. By the time you're watching this, you can watch the video on the Great Betrayal. It's called Betrayed. Um, on this issue, giving the history and asking people to sort, support our petition for a postal bank. But we'll put out a release ne- early next week calling for people to make calls to Jim Chalmers, Angus Taylor, the Shadow Treasurer, and your Member of Parliament, demanding that they do not do this. They do not give up the power of the elected government over the banks. Mm-hmm. That's the issue here, right? So we're going to need you to participate in that. Because they need a shockwave in that building, in Parliament, to say, whoa, the public is not going to just look the other way, assuming we're just doing some kind of technical little fix here. They do not want us to do this, right? And you've got to, give it, you've got to put them on notice about that. It's going to be a big fight. Um, but anyway, that's going to happen uh, early next week. So be prepared for, to participate in that. Um, that said, let's move into the show because we, we've got to um, be careful with time especially today, Craig, we're going to try and cover three subjects, which is a bit ambitious for us. Yes. Uh, but this first one is on the same subject. Who's in charge of, of the financial system? The Gang of Four plotting against your freedom. Um, we're going to put a picture on the screen here. There are four bank executives in Australia, and they've decided that you're going to go cashless. And you've got to stop and think about this. How, is it, how, how has the world come to this point, or Australia come to this point, where we are at the mercy of these four bland-looking individuals who, because they're the heads of retail of each of the big four banks, and that's who they're there, I'll, I'll name them, um, Commonwealth Bank Group Executive of Retail Banking Services, Angus Sullivan, National Australia Bank Group Executive for Personal Banking, Rachel Slade, Westpac Chief Executive of Consumer and Business Banking, Chris De Bruin, and ANZ Bank Group Executive for Australia Retail, Male Carnegie, or Maylie Carnegie, I'm not sure how you pronounce her name. And this was a forum that was put on by the Fin Review um, a couple of weeks ago where they're explicit. Look at the headline. We're going to go cashless, right? We want to go cashless. And they have, how can they even talk um, like this as if just them discussing it can make it happen? Well, there's one, there's one answer to that. They're an oligopoly. Yeah, that is the big four banks. This is where we like when we lost the Commonwealth Bank as a national bank or a centralised government-owned bank. We lost the power to dictate, but just like Curtin said, yep. uh, you know, if you don't have the power over your, your your credit, you can only govern in the second degree. John Curtin said that is absolutely correct. We've lost the ability through national banking to control our own sovereignty. Yep. Now, of course, Albanese and others are always talking about sovereignty. The reality is hollow in this country because we don't have a national bank. Mm. We, and I think John Lander, one of the programs that he showed, showed just it's not China that's buying up Australia. It's the United Kingdom and the United States. Robbie, we have no mechanism in this country to say, get lost, yep. go away. We're going to fund our internal credit through our own national bank. We're going to control our own national finances. Instead, we've got to the point now where you have this oligopoly, I actually call it a dictatorship, not an oligopoly, but a dictatorship saying to the Australian people, no, you're going to accept what we suggest and we're going to create the conditions whereby you don't, you're too busy trying to scrape together a mortgage in order to fight us. Yeah. Now, this well, is the... <clears throat> that's right. I mean, I just we heard this morning that 20% of NAB customers, this bank that just announced a huge profit, a massive profit, 20% of their customers with mortgages, are locked into the National Bank. They can't the get out. they're prisoners. They're prisoners. The ones who borrowed from August to, to um, August 2019 to when interest rates were at their lowest before they started rising are prisoners of NAB. Yeah, and I think Albanese is a prisoner of the Americans and the, the UK because we don't mm. have an independent banking structure. We don't have a National Bank like the Commonwealth Bank up. that did during the war back up the Prime Minister and the country. Yep independent of this financial oligarchy, this dictatorship, and that's what we're looking at, and that's what really is of a concern. Unless we get a national bank, an Australia Post bank, and have an independent financial policy, we are not sovereign, we're not independent, we are nothing, and people should stop kidding themselves. This sort of crap that we're getting from the private banks is going to increase and continue until such a time as there's enough of a revolt 
to to really create the um, the heat on the members of parliament to grow a spine and say, look, you know, we're governing this country, you know, and, and take up John Curtin's uh, mandate that we've got to govern and not the private banks. No, and that, that's a that's a excellent insight because that is the bottom line. Without without the old Commonwealth Bank, private banks, even when they're just making less nefarious. <laughs> They're always nefarious, but less nefarious decisions that are about maximising their profits and efficiency, they get to dictate to all of us because of their market power because we don't have a bank. So now, in this case, we're talking about they have an agenda to go cashless. We want to go through some of the details because they just laid it all out in this forum with the Fin Review. Um, here's Here's the opening quote. Major banks are accelerating the push for a cashless society by seeking deeper partnerships with fintech startups and trying to encourage regional communities to eliminate cash for country events. I'll get to the details of that in a minute. Um, and then, so the, the reporter is James Ayres. And this is what he says about um, this idea of country events, right? Mr. De Bruin from Westpac is talking to business and community leaders in various country towns to drive regional events away from cash, citing the security risk of dealing in bags of cash in remote areas. Now, before I, before I continue with that quote, Craig, citing the security risk of dealing in bags of cash in remote areas, there's only a security risk because that bastard has shut down the branch in that area. If, if Westpac and the other banks kept their branches open, there's no security risk. You take the cash you make that day and go and put it in the bank vault. They are creating the problem by shutting their branches. Profitable branches, which they admitted to the first hearing of the banking inquiry, profitable branches, they're, they're shutting them and they're creating the security risk. So what's their solution? Quote, we are having conversations around how we transform their, we transform their communities, nothing patronising or sinister no, about no. that, and how do they become a cashless town, the Westpac, Westpac boss said. One of the big risks with a small town is they have a carnival or horse race and have $200,000 of cash in a bag and say, I need to put it somewhere safe or drive 100 kilometres to a branch. And we say, why don't we just have no bag of cash and you don't have to go anywhere? So the digital solutions are actually even more powerful in a regional setting. <laughs> well, that's all. Double speak, Robbie. Let me say this again. We are dictating how we intend to transform yeah, communities right. to become a cashless town. One of the big risks with the small town is that they have a carnival horse race and have $200,000 in cash and, and, and say, I need to put this somewhere, drive 100 kilometres to a branch. And we say, we're going to dictate to you that we don't want to have cash, yep. we're going to get rid of it, and you don't have to go anywhere. Therefore, we're solving the problem by literally telling you what we're going to do. Now, that's, and that's true, but then... Okay, think this through. You're in, a, you're in a country town, and we've all been to country towns. So they want your local carnival in a country town to be 100% digital. Yeah. Well, that requires... An internet connection. Really good internet <laughs> coverage. Really good internet coverage, right? And I'll give you an example. It can't just be normal internet coverage. Um, when they had the big um, uh, anti-vaccine protests in Canberra... Um, uh, was at the start of 2022. Uh, everyone was trying to live stream at once, <laughs> and they couldn't. This is Canberra. This is Canberra because yeah. they sucked all the bandwidth away from each other. You get a lot of people together in a crowd, right? And you start getting to, this is so. That's in Canberra that happened. Now that was a bit. That was a very big crowd, but nevertheless, that's the sort of te- technical difficulties they have. In the cities, we have all these farmers markets and things, and you get plenty of that kind of cashless stuff. But we have, you know, 5G uh, internet everywhere, right, in the cities now. We're talking about country towns that don't have that. You can't even get mobile phone reception five kilometres out of town, you know, this sort of stuff, right? Um, so when the bank's saying, we're going to do this, are they also going to pay for the mobile phone towers and for the fibre optic cable? Are they, are they promising to do This is hugely expensive stuff. We have a company called MBN that's supposed to be rolling that out and everyone's complaining about how expensive it is. This is... And, and, of course, Craig, the answer is they're not going to pay for it. No, of course not. So what they're actually saying is, yeah, yeah, we, this, is their, this is them at their most callous and arrogant, saying, yeah, we have a solution for you. Go digital. Stuff your technical difficulties. That's not our problem. That's your problem, right? We've, 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 we've um, washed our hands 
because we've provided you a digital solution. What a lot of garbage. All right, let me keep reading. Uh, James S goes on to say, data collected by the Prudential Regulator shows over the five years to June 2022, bank branch numbers have declined by 30% in major cities and 29% in regional and remote areas. Between January 2020 to October 2021, the Finance Sector Union found ANZ had closed 157 branches, more than CBA at 98, Westpac at 77 and NAB at 18. Right now, NAB is trying to play catch-up, though. There's 64 yeah, branches right. on their chopping list, chopping block. CBA and Westpac have paused additional branch closures during the period of the Senate committee inquiry. Despite the branch cull, that's why I'm reading this quote, ANZ's Ms. Carnegie said, we're actually lagging our customers in changes in habits, not leading it. I'm going to come back to that. We're actually lagging our customers in changing. In other words, we're just doing what the customers want. I think we're at a point where less than 8% of our customers regularly, um, our customer base regularly relies on the branch network. And then she added this, closing physical locations did not mean customers could not speak with a banker. She added, given the widespread adoption of video conferencing post-pandemic. Quote, I think one of the things we need to start differentiating between is the need for a human conversation versus the need for that to be in a branch, Carnegie said. Now, the people who really need these branches, of course, Craig, are the elderly and the, and the vulnerable customers. And so what Ms. Carnegie is advocating is more of this. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to uh, uh, take, take we're a trying look. To, we're tr can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the... it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's, I'm here live. That's not, I'm not a cat. I can, I can see that. Um, I think if you click the up arrow next to this. <laughs> I love the fact that that's an old guy, can't, can't work out how Zoom works. Can you imagine, you know, the little old grandma trying to connect with the bank? Is, is this thing on? Is this thing on? No, you're muted, grandma. You know, um, et cetera, et cetera. They have to be there with the grandkids to make it work, all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a series of points a bit later, but, you know, uh, I'll refer back to that. Um, but, you know, all the onus gets put on the customer to go through all the technical difficulties of trying to do banking so that these guys can make more money, right? Um, so I just, just that, that's, what the, that's what the banks are saying. And don't, don't kid yourself. Are they gonna keep funding? You, get, you know, right now, if they, when they make this transition and you get on Zoom to talk to your banker, you're probably gonna talk to someone in, in um, Sydney maybe. But very soon, once they've got it all worked out, that call is gonna go to someone in New Delhi, right? And that's fine. Good on the people in New Delhi. They know what they're doing. Um, but I will say there's more, there, there are more organized, very sophisticated scammers based out of India as well. And if your data and communications are going into India, right, there must be some kind of um, exposure to that. I'll, I'll, I'll just leave that there. Um, but, you know, this, the, the banks, as if they're committed to really providing the customers what they want, right? Anyway, just, just make that point. Then this line, this is, this is from the article. Even as they involve less retail banking, bank branches will remain important to facilitate commercial services. So not surprisingly, the two banks with the biggest aspirations to serve agribusiness and corporate customers, National Australia Bank and Commonwealth, are more supportive of branches. And I nearly fell off my chair. Really? Seriously? Look at NAB. When the bank, when the regional banking closures inquiry asked NAB and the other big four to pause, just pause their branch closures, NAB said, get stuffed. And they have been, every week, there's more NAB announcements of branch closures, right? The latest ones are Japarit and down on um, Phillip Island or something, somewhere along there that they've, they've closed two branches. And they've reduced hours at 64 more branches 
and reducing hours is the first sign that that bank is going to close. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If those two banks, Craig, NAB and CBA, are the examples of banks that support branches, God help us all, mm. right? It's just this is this is platitude stuff that that the banks are putting in the newspaper. It's absolutely meaningless. Um, so think about this: What do the banks achieve by closing branches, ripping out ATMs, and forcing us to go cashless? I've got four things that they achieve. They get data on all of our transactions. And that data, what that does, they get a profile on us, everything we do. They've got very sophisticated predictive technology that goes into the AI area, etc. That can then preempt what we want to do. It's the Facebook algorithm type. You know, remember when people started noticing, I just had a conversation and suddenly Facebook is showing me an ad related to yeah. what I was having a conversation about, right? This sort of stuff, right? It's all, they get very sophisticated, it's very predictive. That's what the banks are doing and want to do and they get to monetize that data and that's power for them. It's also control and I want to mention this here as well. Um, in the, another, another event from the pandemic, um, this time much more serious, was the Ottawa protests in Canada. The big started off as a truckies protest and then all these people descended on Ottawa. And what did the Canadian government do eventually to shut down the process? Protests cut off their bank accounts. Just cut them off, right? And that's what um, people are worried about central bank digital currency and the, what they've heard about it. Now, we're going to do some work on that in the future, but central bank digital currency, the way it works, come down to, comes down to how it's programmed, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't, it, it, um, it's certainly not a substitute for cash, but uh, you know, th- that'll work the way people let it work, frankly. But what people, it could be quite um, dystopian, right? Where it's used as a form of control. What people don't realise when they're thinking about central bank digital currency, it's already here. What they, the power that they, their bank has over them when they're not using cash is enormous already. And that, that corporation can cut them off. And so also a couple of weeks ago, we highlighted the case of Paul Thomas from Commander Security, our friend, um, suddenly NAB, just one afternoon on Friday, Friday uh, shut off all access to his internet banking. All access. Because they're targeting for him for debanking. They just mm-hmm. shut it off. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't function. And he had nowhere to turn because it was over a weekend. right? And that's, that's the sort of power that they have. So this is what they get. That's, that's what one of the things they achieve, number one. Uh, two, they, they increase their productivity because they... Because they get to, you know, lay off workers, etc. Shut down branches. Yeah. Shut down branches. <clears throat> they increase their productivity by decreasing our productivity, and because we get, to- we're the ones that have to deal with the technical difficulties. Well, it's, yeah, well, you take Coburg. There used to be a Bendigo Bank in the main street of Coburg. We've got a Bendigo Bank account, right? If you want to deposit a check into that Bendigo Bank account, I have to drive 15 minutes yep. west, try and find a park because everyone else is coming into that area, and then drive back again. That's 45 minutes of yep. my time to deposit a cheque. It, you know, it took less than 15 seconds to deposit that cheque, right? Yep, yep. Because you didn't even have, have a deposit slip because of the digital revolution, but we still... And they'll say, that, oh, the, the rate of that problem is get rid of cheques. That's what they're saying, right? Yep. And that's what they actually are doing because the NAB and various, uh, the Commonwealth Bank are no longer issuing checkbooks to new customers. So then that's how they'll solve that problem. But that, what that doesn't solve, Craig, is it's the pro- technical difficulties that arise, right? That the less sophisticated you are, the more problems you have with those difficulties. And I want to give an example that's not banking. Last night, I went to Woolies, my local Woolies, and they had the self-serve checkout. And you go there because it's going to be quicker to go through there than, than line up. But I used the machines that had that take cash for payment, right? And now in Woolies, you might know you've got to feed the cash in. They don't; they're, they're too scared to handle it. Um, the, cust- the, the, the staff are not too scared. That's just the, the system they've got now. Anyway, as usual, our machine went Stuffed. on the blink, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So we put up our hand, and I turned around. And I kid you not, there's about uh, at that Woolies, there's probably about eight, I think, machines. Six of them. People will put up their hands at once. And there's one guy, and so we've all got to wait while he's going and dealing. And it's quick quick for him to solve the problem. But he's going and dealing one at a time, solve the problem. We're waiting for this, right? Um, And so for Woolies, they they, they have one guy 
that they have to pay to help us work, navigate these technical problems while we cumulatively stand there for many, many minutes cumulatively together where, where the cost is now on us. Mm-hmm. Whereas once upon a time, all businesses, the whole, the whole virtue of a business was the service we provide helps you. Let us do it for you, right? Now we have to do it. We are our own tellers. We get on, even if you're good on internet banking, don't do it without your glasses on where you might mistake, especially if you're dealing with big transfers, where you might mistakenly put an extra zero, right? Don't do it in a hurry, uh, et cetera. Um, there's, there's always this increased stress. And like I said, with the more unsophisticated you are, the more stressful it is, whereas they're replacing a service where it didn't matter who you were, you went in, you lined up, you got served at the bank, and when you walked out, you had absolute certainty of mind that that, that transaction was dealt with. Or if it was right? wrong, you had a receipt. In or if it was wrong, you had a receipt. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right? So they're increasing their productivity at our expense. We are decreasing productivity. And multiply Craig's story by millions of small businesses around Australia, multiply my examples by many more millions of individuals around Australia, and all the benefit of that is going to the, is going to the banks. Um, the third thing they achieve is they get a cut of all transactions. And this is, this is so good. This, you know, easy money. Once we're locked into their system, because that's what, when you're not using cash, you are locked into the bank system. We'll say more about that in a minute. They just got to say, program it. Okay, even if they take half a cent, doesn't matter. Half a cent on everything ends up being a lot. This is the logic behind what they call high-frequency trading in the stock market. Mm. They program these computers to be able to front-run everyone's trades and just take a fraction of a cent. But it happens so quickly, it just accumulates and they make lots of money out of it, right? The banks want that. They just want to be able to sit back and draw in all that money at our expense, right? And it just becomes, you know, um, th- well, that's the, not what banking's supposed to be. Well, Robbie, the, the, the recent report by NAB coming in $4.1 half-year profit. Yeah. And the share price dropped by 6 or 7%. You know why that is? It's because the big investors in the NAB and our banks are foreign investors. Yep. And they're also the big superannuation companies. It's not the ordinary people. No. They can't afford to buy large quantities of these shares. So it's the institutional investors saying, you have to rip more out of the economy, out of the people, because we want to get more profits back into our superannuation funds to serve the people. Yep. Right, that's only again a very small raft of it. But a lot of these, a lot of the investors we've done the work on, uh, are, are overseas companies. No, right? exactly. And now that's the problem. Um, uh, the fourth point I want to make is they they literally trap us inside the banking system. Now we'll put a, an image of this. There's a there's a book written last year by a South African who, who lives in Britain named Brett Scott called Cloud Money. I've talked about it before. What, he, what this book is very good at explaining, simplify the technical detail, but so I'll just make it as simple as possible. Um, putting aside gold, silver, bullion, and, and cryptocurrency, putting that aside, um, and he'll, he makes certain assertions about that, but I, want to, I don't want to get into that argument. For most people, there's two types of money that they're exposed to. There's, he calls it state money, which means government money, which is our cash, but that's, that exists in two forms. Government money, the money the government has said, this is the currency of the country, exists in the form of cash and exists in the form of cent- reserve bank reserves, central bank reserves between the big banks. That's what they settle their transactions. Like when we, when we make a, an internet transaction or a card transaction, what we're actually doing is saying to our bank, please give me permission to buy this. And the bank says, okay, I, you have my permission. I will now go and settle with the, the customer, the, the bank of the shop that you're buying from, and we'll do this transfer, and that happens between the, the, the reserves at the central bank, right? Mm. Those are the two forms of government or state money. Everything else is bank money. This is his point. It's bank money. When, when our money is in the bank, it's bank money. And the only off-ramps to the banking system are branches, and ATMs, where we withdraw cash. When we have cash, yes, it's the state's money, but that's, we're in, this is our country, right? We're part of, you know, um, we, we, we are part of a system, a, a governance system, where we acknowledge the authority of the government and, and the, the, the um, you know, the, the uh, uh, 
you know, the, um, what, what's the word, the legitimacy of the government, right? And therefore, we endorse the currency, et cetera, that we use. It's, you, we do it instinctively without thinking about it. Um, but nobody can tell us, outside of certain rules, what we can do with our money, right? Mm -hmm. That's all ours. The decisions we make are sovereign on that. But when you're in the bank's system, you are asking permission every time. You don't know it. You flash your card, or you are asking permission every time. And back to my, my back to my example from Canada, they have the power to say no. And in Australia, even before that happened, we were talking about this in 2019 with the with the ten thousand dollar cash ban. We learned about this thing we hadn't heard about called debanking, hmm. right? And debanking was being targeted at vape stores, and now that's in the news again. Sh shooters, right? These are and these were legal things, but the banks are saying we're shutting you down. In, in central Queensland and that, the banks have been debanking businesses associated with the coal industry. I mean, it's not just a, a legal industry. It's actually making a lot of money for Australia. But they say, oh, we're not going to do business. They, they just cut these people off, right? Because they had the power to do that. If we had a public bank, it would not be able to discriminate against any lawful business, by the way, right? You would always be able to bank at the public bank. But that's the power that they have already, now, most of the time, they give you permission to do the transaction, but the point is, if they chose not to, they, they can cut you off, right? That's what um, the power that they have. They've trapped us inside the banking system. Because, Robbie, when you put your money in the bank, you're actually signing a contract to say, we allow you to do and to control our money, our cash, right? A public bank would not have that power because you're acting on behalf, it would be acting on behalf of the government to facilitate the movement of cash on behalf of the people that own the bank. Yeah. Yep. We're a big, big difference here. And, yep. you know, I, back in the 90s, I went into the bank and I wanted to withdraw some money. I, mean, I think it was, it was as, a, as a test, some $30,000, and they wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> right? They said, no, you can have a cheque. I said, no, I want it in cash. Yeah. I'm not allowed to. We, we, you can't you can't get cash. I mean, this still happens today even worse. Yeah, but yeah, this, was, this was 30, that's 35 years ago yeah, that's when, when it, it first started. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a bit terrifying. No, but because the banks can say that to you because they actually have no contractual responsibility to supply you with what you want. And you give up a lot of powers to them with, with the, um, what they call the terms and conditions yep. of your deposit account, which most people don't read. Okay, so now I just want to put one thing to bed, though. I'm going to play a clip from 2020, which we played on this show at the time in 2020. This is from June 2020. And pay, pay close attention. This is a Channel 7 report. Because this puts to bed this idea that the banks, the quote I used before where ANZ's Ms. Carnegie said, we're actually lagging our customers' change in habits. That's what she said, not leading it. Anna Bly goes around saying that. Watch this clip and look at what it says about the banks essentially bragging that they've achieved thanks to the pandemic. Bank branches and ATMs will start disappearing across the country as the pandemic shifts Australians further towards a cashless economy. The use of cash has more than halved as many retailers switch to cards and phone payments, transforming the way we use money. It's the unintended cost of avoiding close contact. The big banks say they've achieved in 10 weeks what it planned to take five years. Things have changed so fast. Who would have believed there'd be merchants in Sydney that wouldn't accept cash? A recent Reserve Bank of Australia consumer survey found a decade ago cash was used in 62% of all payments. By 2016, it dropped to 37%, falling to 27% last year. Since the pandemic hit, it's estimated to have plunged to less than 10% in many sectors. It may have accelerated during this period, uh, but the bottom line is that banking is considered by Australians as an essential service. The big four banks have closed 170 branches during the lockdown. Some may not reopen. Australia's 28,000 ATM machines could drop to as few as 15,000 and cheques will be consigned to history. We're on track to become like Sweden, the world's leading cashless economy, where just 13% of transactions are done with cash. And the government has been forced to legislate to guarantee the access to cash for those who need to or prefer using it. Particularly people in remote and rural areas and older Australians. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that still want to use cash, that still want to go into a bank. In April, banks increased the tap-and-go limit on cards to $200. Soon we might only see notes and coins when we tap to get into a museum. Brian Seymour, 7 News. This is it. This is that's. They admit they had plans. They had plans for us to go cashless, and thanks to the pandemic, they achieved in 
10 weeks, what they had planned would take five years. And I also point out, Craig, at the start of that, the, um, the prediction was right. That opened up by saying that expect the banks to shut a lot more branches. That's mm. exactly what mm. they've done, seizing on the pandemic. And NAB is the most, well, they're all shameless, but NAB, NAB is running around with figures saying, oh, look, look at the drop off in foot traffic at branches in the last, in, in, the, in the three years they cited, 20, 2019, 2020, and 2021. Yeah, really what happened? And they don't note, they don't note what happened in those years. Yeah, it was called the pen. It was called COVID. It was called lockdowns, right? It was called whole whole periods when you couldn't go to the bank, right, etc. But of course, the foot traffic's fallen down. Or the staff in the bank were sick and they closed the no, branches. They, closed the they reduced the hours, so therefore the tr- foot traffic couldn't get into the branches. Well, let me let me end, let me end on a um, uh, on some positive notes though, because it's all rubbish. We're confident it's all rubbish, and there's lots and lots of signs. Here, here are the signs that Aussies do not want to go this way. Yeah, we do things for convenience. We're happy to do that. We do not want to be forced into a dystopian cashless future that the banks want. Here are the signs. Last Friday, the, 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 inquiry, the submissions to the regional banking inquiry closed. They, they have received well over 500 submissions. There's a 544th submission up there now, and they haven't finished processing them all. And, and in 19, the contrast is in 1999, there was a, the first big inquiry into regional bank closures was held. Anthony Albanese was on it. That received 117 submissions. Mm. And that was a big inquiry. This is a huge inquiry now. And this is going to fire up the senators involved, etc., because they're going to see the enormous public engagement. Thank you for participating in it. it get, on, get on the website and look in the submission section. Have a look yourself. Um, the second one, this is big. There's a change.org petition calling for a cash and banking guarantee that's been put up there by Jason Bryce of the Cash Welcome Campaign. That is now at 110, more than 110,000 signatures on change.org. That is a very big petition. And change.org has even assigned its own case officer to help the petition, the petition because change.org likes to see that they're having an impact with the petitions that they host. That's a huge petition by Australian standards, more than 110,000 on that petition. If you haven't signed it, go ahead and sign it and share it and encourage everyone else to sign it. That's going to get politicians' attention in its own right. Um, And then put up a couple of articles. This is in the Daily Mail. The the Daily Mail covered this. Um, This is a small business putting up a sign saying, please pay us in cash. And this is really, really common now. And what are the small businesses avoiding by doing this? The snarks in Parliament and in the you know, like KPMG, they say, oh, they're trying to avoid tax. No, ask them. What they're trying to avoid is bank charges, right? Every time you use your card, they cop a charge. And if you tap and go, they cop double the charge they do if you do FBOS, right? But even then, it's a charge. And so at the end of the month, they have to pay those charges, and they're sick of it when they prefer to be paid in cash, and they're asking for it to be paid in cash. That's one example there. We do the same thing, Robbie, because we have merchant fees of you know, something like $1,500 a month. Yeah. It would be great to be able to, you know, reach out to our customers, say, pay us in cash. But, of course, our we have supporters different... are all over the country. But that's still a huge impost. That's yeah. $15,000 a year. Which you've got to come up with. Well, actually, $17,500 a year, which goes straight into the banks. Yeah. Right? And it's, this is where they make their massive profits from. Yeah. And if you're a smaller trans customer, your rate is much higher. You know, yeah, right. you've got, it goes on turnover, the volume of the, oh, um, really? of, the, of the cash you put through. So service stations and the like, you know, they say they accept credit cards because their proportion is very small. It might only be 0.05%. We're 2.75% yeah. right, of every credit card transaction. And, you know, and then it changes also depending on the card that the person used. If it's an international Visa or MasterCard, you could be paying something like 5%. Right, if it's just a normal Cha-ching. Visa card, I mean, there's a list of about 30 different types of cards that you get on the statement, and the different rates for each card. Yeah. Right, and so there's a huge amount of money that is derived from the banks by these charges on credit and debit facilities. No, no, that's. I mean, that's. This is their business model. What is what this the, the, this model, want, Craig, is one of fleecing. That's all they want. Right, we're sheep. They want to be able to shear us at, at their whim. And that's not how banking is supposed to work. Okay. Um, and then finally, I found this quite funny. There are some, here's the irony. Technology is being used as an excuse to take away our cash and take away our branches. Well, modern communications technology is actually, 
is actually coming to the rescue in a funny way because it's driving online trends among young people who love being driven into online trends by social media like TikTok and, and Instagram. Suddenly, they're discovering the best way to save money is with cash. And so there's a campaign called Stuff It. Um, cash stuff, there's a, there's, a, there's a trend called cash stuffing where you buy these special um, wallet things and stuff your cash in there as savings mechanisms. And this is taking off. This is because the, the people producing these, these satchel things, are make, their business is booming because it's, spread, it's spreading around social media. So young, young people, because we're all, you know, money's short now because of inflation and whatever, um, they're thinking, how do we save up? Well, you've got to save up in cash. All the, all the um, you know, everything else that they've been encouraged to do, like this afterpay stuff, right, is encouraging them not to do any savings at all, right? And now they're realizing, well, this is not getting them anywhere. So there's that one. There's one called the 100, the 100 Envelope, I think it's called the 100 Envelope Challenge or something, where you, <laughs> you put, you take 100 envelopes and you mark them 1 to 100 and you put, um, you, you pull out, uh, every day you pull out one of them, whatever number's on it, you put that much cash in there. And they say at the end of 100 days, you'll have uh, $5,050, right, saved up. And so people are doing this because sometimes you've got to put $99 in there, etc. Um, uh, yeah, uh, so this is, this is the, the fact that these are trends is because people are, is young people are finally embracing them, which I'm, I'm very glad to see. Um, of course, the ultimate solution, Craig, is the postal bank. And I just want to highlight, I've got to, uh, if, if you go back and if you go and look at the submissions to the regional banking task force, a whole bunch of them is from indiv- are from individuals calling for a postal bank, and also a bunch of institutions like like councils have put in their submissions that there needs to be a government funded banking solution, which basically we're we're, we're offering in the form of a um, in the form of a postal bank. Yeah, well, we're going back to Robbie. What was just standard? You know, 60 years ago with the Commonwealth Bank, that we did have a public bank which actually stood as a bulwark against the predatory nature of the yeah. private banking system. That's what we've got to go back to. We've got all the predicates. We had a tremendous institution in the Commonwealth Bank. It got privatised in 1999, right, by Keating, <laughs> ironically, ironically, right, because he was trying to turn us into the Antipodean Venice, you know, the financial, olig- financial centre of the South. And all those policies have destroyed our country with the predatory. Uh, economic rationalism projects and pro- you know, privatisation, all of that's just bringing us back to the solution, which of course is take control of the credit, like John Curtin said, otherwise you can only govern in the second degree. And I hope, that, sorry Craig, and I hope from this discussion people actually appreciate, we're not just, we're not, we're not, we're not trying to resist technology here, it's not about that. This is, this is about the functionality of the financial system and cash is still a very important part of that. Where you get technology, Robbie, is very useful if there is a governing process which is done for the benefit of the people and it's not dictated to and that's that's the problem we've got a financial dictatorship in the form of these private banks that are dictating the process not the government yep all right let's race through the next two items because we're running out of time um was the attack on the kremlin that could start world war three a jolly good show and that 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 title's deliberate because I want to start with an Iraqi saying that our friend Sleeman Yohanna told me about. They have a saying in Iraq, when you come across two people fighting, look for the British. Because this was, this was their um, you know, bitter history in the Middle East. Because what you have with the, with the British Empire, they're always specialists at divide and conquer, third force provocations. And we're raising that in the context of this attack on the Kremlin, this drone attack, because... This attack is deadly serious, deadly serious. And Scott Ritter, the former weapons inspector, American um, Marine is a former weapons inspector, who was right. He campaigned against the Iraq war at the time of the Iraq war because he was in Iraq saying they do not have weapons of mass destruction and he was ignored. So 20 years later, if you, don't, if you want to avoid a war, listen to people with credibility like Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter said of this attack on the Kremlin, don't let people belittle it to you and say, oh, ha, 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 that's nothing. He said, what if it was the White House? If the White House was attacked in those circumstances, that attack would be responded to in the most serious way. Yeah, they'd eliminate the source. Absolutely eliminate it, Hmm. right? That's what you've got to understand. Why should we assume the Kremlin are going to think any differently? Hmm. This is that we we tend to think of the world through this 
this um, Anglo-American lens, right, where there's only one point of power, the White House and everything else can bow to it. No, no, the rest of the world doesn't think that way. And this was very, very serious. So why are we, why are we talking about the British? Well, let's look at it, just a few things I want to highlight. Um, in April 2022, there was, just after the war started in, in Ukraine, there was a strong indication by Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, that he was going to negotiate. When he indicated that, Boris Johnson flew into Kiev and sabotaged it personally. It was the British who went and sabotaged that. They would not tolerate that. That's now happened again. Um, last week, Zelensky had a phone call with Xi Jinping. And Zelensky was happy to take that phone call from Xi Jinping. Ukraine has a very important economic relationship with China. And Xi Jinping was initiating the... China has offered a plan to bring this to a negotiated end. Xi Jinping was following that through. Zelensky took the call and spoke positively about that call. The very next day, Sir Richard Dearlove, former boss of MI6, turned up in Kiev with a delegation to sabotage it again. And now, within days of that, you've had this um, the, uh, the opposite of, ne of a negotiated move to a negotiation. You've had a serious escalation with this attack on the, um, uh, on the Kremlin. Um, we put out in our uh, Australian Alert Service publication a couple of weeks ago, Craig, in an article in what's called the Washington Insider, a description of how, by the admission of the Pentagon and the British military, they have special ops in Ukraine and maybe operating behind enemy lines, which is based on the old special operations executive from World War II, right? They have said enough, we don't have time to go through the quotes now, but they have said enough to indicate that they have active sabotage operations going on behind enemy lines, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, they're the, you know, I mean, they're, they're some of the best in the world at what they do um, in this regard, right? They have the power to break this up. And we need, to, people need to um, uh, take this very, very seriously because the consequences of this kind of escalation is a much bigger war because that's what whoever's behind this escalation, that's what they're trying to provoke Russia into. So an ex-CIA guy um, named Larry Johnson, who was on a YouTube show in America, the way he put it was, Rush, people who, who are behind this, if, if, if they're in Ukraine, they want Russia to retaliate in a way that's so big that then NATO has to come in because at the moment, NATO is in Ukraine. Don't kid yourself, but it's very informally. NATO will have to come in and then it's on. Mm -hmm. Direct conflict between NATO and Russia, which means America and Russia, which means World War III, right? That's, um, that's what's going on. So all I can say, just, just briefly for the time we can devote to this, if you, if you want to know, call in and get a copy of our Australian Alert Service to um, read that article, and you should consider subscribing to the Australian Alert Service. So we'll just, we'll just deal with it um, uh, in that way for now because I want to get on. We're running out of time. I just want well, to get look, on. To, there'll be more coming up in the next week. So this oh, is yeah, so serious. Oh, yeah, keep an eye on this. this yeah. Just, just to take away from this show, this is really, really serious. This is not just something that will be laughed off, right? Mm. When, you know, um, whatever, you, whatever videos they show you, et cetera, the Kremlin was attacked. And think about that as the equivalent of the White House being attacked. And you always have to look at the underlying financial system in the West, Robbie. The solution these guys think, oh, we're losing control, people are revolting, therefore we're going to create war. Yep. And that's the problem to here. To kill this, those revolting people. To kill those revolting people, but also to kill those nations that are revolting against the whole uh, you know, Western yep. operations. You know, the, the support for China and Russia, particularly around many, many countries, is growing by the day because of the, 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 because of the war. They see what can be done to them if they oppose this uh, you know, Western homogeny. Yeah. And then, and, and now let's get on to the final point. On World Press Freedom Day, don't mention Assange. I want to play three clips. That's why I'm trying to rush through this because I want people to be able to see these clips. This week was World Press Freedom Day. I'm wearing my, like I said, don't shoot the messenger um, Assange T-shirt. Um, uh, the Americans, as usual, they probably invented this World Press Freedom Day rubbish, right? So... They're, they're doing all these events, gushing on about the importance of World Press Freedom because there's, a, there's a, a Wall Street journalist, Wall Street Journal journalist who's been arrested in Moscow as a, 
as a, an American spy. I will say this, I don't know anything about that guy, whether he's a spy or not, but I will say this, the Wall Street Journal is owned by Rupert Murdoch. They have campaigned against Julian Assange. They have campaigned for Assange to be, to be extradited, extradited and put in prison, the Wall Street Journal. And now one of their, 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 they want us to feel sorry for one of their guys, right, who's also been charged with espionage. But here's what happened. So the White House press corps, someone in the White House press corps asked the White House spokeswoman um, about Julian Assange on World Press Freedom Day. Play the tape. One more press freedom question. Um, advocates on, on Twitter today have been talking a great deal about how the United States is engaged in hypocrisy by talking about how Evan Gershkovich is held in Russia on espionage charges, but the United States has espionage act charges pending against Julian Assange. Can you respond to that criticism? Say, what is the criticism? Well, the criticism is that uh, the, the argument is that Julian Assange is a journalist who engaged in the publication of government documents. The United States is accusing him of crime and under the Espionage Act, and that therefore the United States is, is, is losing the moral high ground when it comes to the question of whether a reporter engages in espionage as a function of his work. So can you respond to that? Look, I'm not going to speak to Julian Assange in that case from here. Uh, what I will say is, and you heard directly from the president, uh, when today in his statement on this uh, on this anniversary, but also uh, during the dinner where he talked about the freedom of the press and how important it is to protect uh, journalists because it is part of our democracy, right? It is important to have that uh, if we want to have a democracy, right? It is part of uh, part of uh, uh, part of how we move forward. The telling the facts, being able to tell the truth, and be able to reporters to do that freely. And so the president's going to continue to speak to that. Uh, the president's going to continue to work to make sure that these Americans who are, again, held hostage, who are wrongfully detained, come home. And that is something that we have seen under this administration. He was, has been able to do more than a dozen times. And so you see this president's commitment in just this last two years. We put forward additional tools uh, to do that, uh, to, to deal with this matter. And so that's what I can speak to. That's what I can speak to the president's commitment on this. I'm not going to uh, weigh in on uh, comments about Julian Assange. So, so there you go, Craig. Oh, yeah, well, yes, there's this fly in the ointment here. Yes, there's this thing that proves we're total damn hypocrites. Yeah. So I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> All right, that's, that was the White House spokesman, spokeswoman. Then Anthony Blinken was at an event, um, crapping on about World Press Freedom Day. So Medea Benjamin, her name is, if I've got that, I think it's Medea Benjamin, from Code Pink, and they've been anti-war activists for 20, more than 20 years. I remember that she started at the time of the Iraq war. She got up and asked, and, and this is what happened. In particular, I'm curious whether you've uh, been able to talk. Excuse us, we can't use this day without calling for the freedom of Julian Assange. The The extradition request for Julian Assange. Two hours and not one word. Take it easy, take it easy, take it easy, guys. Not one word about journalist Shireen Abdul Akhli, who was murdered so, by the Israeli Army. We're here to celebrate freedom of expression, and we just experienced it. Let me, let me continue, uh, uh, Mr. Secretary, to, to ask you about Evan Gershkovich and your efforts to get him free. So there you go, Craig. You know, they don't want to talk about it, right? They absolutely don't want to talk about it. In that case, you know, the usual snark, oh, yeah, you're expressing your freedom of opinion. No, she's talking to the Secretary of State about the guy that you're persecuting in prison because he's exposed your government's crimes, and you know it, you hypocrites. Finally, this is a, this is a, this is, this is a longer video. So our friends in the LaRouche movement in the United States, Schiller Institute, etc., um, they are part of the, a big part of the anti-war campaign in the United States. And they have this gun young fellow named Jose Vega. And Jose Vega, for the last however long, during the whole Ukraine thing, has been going around attending, attending public events and getting up and asking questions. So this was a media event about World Press Freedom Day. The video you're about to see has gone viral. It's got over 5 million views, right? And it's everyone knows that he's completely on the money. We'll play the whole tape. Watch Jose Vega talk to these editor editors at these top New York newspapers about what what they're not reporting. Oh, is this the lecture hall with Seymour Hirsch? 
I, I just I'm looking for the one with Seymour Hirsch because it's a policy and press hall event. So shouldn't we be talking about the Nord Stream since that's the biggest story of the century? And you guys, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, you have the executive editor of the New York Times there who came out with a phony story to try and block Seymour Hirsch. It just it's just kind of funny how that happened. You know, I mean, did you even acknowledge Seymour Hirsch? All of you are executive editors of papers that broke Pentagon, Me Lai, Watergate. Is this the same papers or not? I mean, is there anything you've gotten right in the last 20 years? Or am I mistaken about that? I mean, it's just kind of funny because Iraq, wrong. Syria, wrong. Russiagate, really wrong. Okay, I mean, the list goes on and on. So the last thing you could do to try and actually fix your reputation is acknowledge that through leaks, we had to find out that Zelensky was going to bomb Moscow on the anniversary. I mean, if you're so impartial, shouldn't you at least say, right, that Zelensky was going to bring us on the verge of World War III? That seems pretty fair. While Julian Assange rots in prison, all of you got, you know, fat checks because he's in jail for doing your job. And you know what? Tucker Carlson ain't no Seymour Hirsch, but he did something you guys are scared to do. Speak the truth and actually be critical of the war, which is why he was actually fired from Fox, because you are all cowards, every single one of you. None of you have actually had any relevancy. And you know what? The mainstream press is now dying. Nobody's ever going to listen to you again. You have no credibility with the public. The only people who care about what you have to say are elite assholes who have nothing productive to say anymore. And it's dying off. So will you at least say something, either about Nord Stream or Ukraine or the fact that Zelensky brought us to the verge of World War III and the only reason we knew about that was through leaks? I'm, go ahead. It's a free speech event, right? You guys are the press. Let's say something here. Mr. Khan, come on. You know, you're the executive head of the New York Times, you know? I'm just trying to get into some good trouble here, man. Listen, Karen, get out of my face for a second. I got to talk to these gentlemen. Well, I just want to hear what they have to say. Go ahead. I'm done. Wait your turn. You're not going to tell them to you. Come. Wait your turn. You could, you could project if we can't. I respond to hear everybody's point of view. Yeah. So thank you. All right. I do think that we need to give our moderator a chance to ask one of the questions. We're on the verge of World War III. Let's go. Say something about this bombing. We blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Listen, don't stand there while there are people rotting in prison. Nobody said anything about Uhuru, right? The socialists who are in jail for being critical of this war? God damn it! At least say something about the people in jail for being critical of this war. They don't deserve to be in prison right now! So there you go. Yeah, they... they they're so sorry. They're so up themselves. And we're to supposed people. to believe the Western media, Robbie. That's the problem. It's and then look at look. And, and I have to say this as well. If you're ever at an event and someone like that does that, don't act like these jerks in the crowd who, you know, fat middle-aged white rich people, right? Who are there in all their unctuousness and and sanctimony. You know, they're they're part of the New York elite. Oh, some bo- some some blokes bothering them. No, that's. You know, understand the motivation behind these things, right? This is he is he is blowing the whistle on the war agenda, and you know they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to talk about Assange. But that said, um, it's not that simple because someone did talk about Assange just quickly. We we can't play the clip, but Anthony Albanese is in London for the the King's coronation. We won't go there. Um, he was asked about Assange, and for the first time since he's been Prime Minister, he spent three minutes talking about it. Now, what he mostly what he did was mealy-mouthed and weak as usual, but what he did was spend three minutes talking about it. He reiterated it's got to come to an end. He, he actually said he's going to be talking to Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, and Joe Biden about it. He said, he said this... He took out... He, he, um, uh, this, is, this is the quote, though, right? He said... I can't, he expressed frustration, he said, I can't do more than make my position clear. Yes, he can. He can demand it, right? Mm -hmm. But 
take the fact that he talked about it at that length in that event as a reflection of what the Australian people are forcing them to actually acknowledge, right? Yeah. As someone in our office pointed out, it would be easy. It would have been easier for him in an interview to say, "I'm not. I'm here for the King's coronation. I'm not here to talk about that." Yeah. But he didn't because he knows he has to. He has to uh, address it. So that said, let's end on this note. On the 20th of May, there's a big demonstration planned in Sydney for the quad. The quad. Joe Biden's coming to town. Against the quad. Against the quad. Yeah. Joe Biden's coming to town, and that'll be an anti-war, pro-Assange demonstration. If you're in Sydney or the surrounding districts, get along to that demonstration. Very, very important that people go along to that. We can. This can be the biggest message to the government, to Biden, etc., on this issue. At least get the Assange issue addressed. But that's it. We're out of time. So, Craig. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, thanks Robbie. Comments. Thanks to the viewer for, for um, uh, tuning in. Tune next, next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.